Amy Lynn Hansen spoke to her older sister on November 29th, 2014. They talked about going Black Friday shopping, but Amy had other plans with friends the next day. She left her family home in Tehachi, New Mexico the day before to go see those friends and say goodbye to her father who had never expected it would be the last time he'd see her alive. On November 30th, a father and son found her body in what's called an arroyo, or for those of us not from southwestern United States, a steep-sided gully formed by fast-flowing water in a desert-like area. Yes, I had to look this up. Like in Red Rock, New Mexico. It's been a while since I covered a case of a missing or murdered indigenous person, but as per usual, very little information about her murder could be found. While she was found a day later by the boy and his dad, she was taken to the county morgue and listed as a Jane Doe. It was 10 whole days from the time her body was discovered until her family was told that she was at the morgue. I'm your host, Catherine, and I hope you're ready for the stories of four women wrapped up into one episode. A bit of business before diving into this one. Gift certificates are up and available on catherineandintuitive.com. So let's sit down and see how 2023 is looking for you and how you can better navigate your current situation in order to reach your ideal situation. My private readings can be with the sole intention of connecting to a loved one on the other side, or they can be for the purpose of guidance through a more difficult time in life or just gaining clarity altogether. Thank you to all of you who have connected with me and for trusting me with your energy. If you haven't heard, Murder and Mediumship is now on Discord, and that's where you can get show updates, crime conversation, and drop any questions or curiosities you have about current or past episodes. Discord access is available at all Patreon tiers, whether you're joining us for live recorded bonus episodes, practicing your intuitive gifts, or simply sending love and supporting the show. Thank you all for being here. I am so grateful for each and every one of you. Now let's get into the story. As far as the public knows, Amy died of blunt force trauma to the head. We don't know anything else about the condition of her body, and her car was found at a local tow yard. And again, we don't know what condition the vehicle was in either. Honestly, I don't even know what type of car it was. You might be wondering about the friends she was visiting because I know I was wondering about them, but none of them have been identified publicly either. No persons of interest have been named, and there are no known suspects. So why tell this story? Amy was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, to Jerry and Bernay Hansen. She has an older sister who, for a bit, her parents weren't sure she'd get the chance to meet because, you see, Amy was born three months premature and fought to be able to live her life. She was eventually brought home to her older sister, though, and even had the blessing of having her grandmother right next door. How do I know any of this? Was it in the news? No. Was it intuitive? No, it totally wasn't. Her story hasn't been covered, though. The country was focused on Amanda Knox being tried again for the murder of her roommate, Meredith Kirscher, in Italy. We were focused on the disappearance of UVA student Hannah Graham. And then we were embroiled in police brutality with the unnecessary deaths of 18-year-old Michael Brown and Eric Garner, who you might recognize from the phrase, I can't breathe. Amy, a member of Navajo Nation, was nowhere on America's radar in 2014. The most detailed information about who she was came from a heartfelt obituary written by her family. She had just finished her associate's degree in business administration from the University of New Mexico in Gallup earlier in 2013, and she was actually in the process of getting started on her bachelor's, but her life was taken before she started back to school. 
Her family reported her missing and searched the area known as Four Corners, where Colorado, Utah, New Mexico, and Arizona meet. Authorities were not really involved, which is common with missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls or persons' cases. Eventually, MMIW USA, a nonprofit based in Portland, Oregon, became involved to help support more publicity for Amy's murder. If you know anything about the murder of Amy Lynn Hansen, call the FBI at 505-889-1300. According to the Navajo Times, while perusing their Facebook posts, I saw multiple comments about how there are dozens of murders of Indigenous persons in the Four Corners region, and nothing seems to really be done about them. In July of 2022, the FBI released a list of missing Indigenous persons with a total of 177 names on it. The idea behind the list is to publicly show who who is in the National Crime Information Center database and who isn't. They encourage family members of missing or murdered Indigenous persons to come to local authorities if their family member is not on the list. The list has been updated monthly since its release in October of this year. There were 192 missing Indigenous persons in the Navajo Nation in New Mexico alone. As far as I know, this list does not include those missing from Utah or Arizona but it is available on the FBI's website. And I, of course, will link it in the show notes. And I have to say, I kind of wonder how much faith Indigenous people have in getting their family members on this list or what it will actually do for them because they've been let down for so many years by local and tribal law enforcement and by federal agencies. So as you've heard on the show before, though, Native American women are murdered at a rate that is 10 times higher than the national average and three times higher than white women specifically. Navajo Nation spans roughly 17,544,500 acres across three states and yet has less than 200 police officers to cover all of that area. Less than 200. That would be sad in and of itself, except that there are plenty of multi-jurisdictional issues that come into play when attempting to go to the authorities over missing persons or with any sort of issue at all for Indigenous persons, both on and off reservations. State police can't get involved on the reservation unless a non-Navajo person is involved in a dispute of some sort. If you're still listening to this episode that's somewhat different from our usual content, then fantastic. Thank you for being here still, because this is really important. In 2017, homicide was the fourth leading cause of death for Indigenous women under the age of 19 and sixth leading cause for Indigenous women between the ages of 20 to 44. Now, I kind of have a problem with saying women under the age of 19 because at that point, you've got about two years of being a woman there, 18, 19, if you're looking at legality. So from ages zero right on up to 17, you're a minor. You are a minor. So that is the fourth leading cause of death for indigenous girls, not women, in my opinion. For white women under the age of 19, the top four leading causes of death are four, birth defects, three, cancer, two, suicide, and four, unintentional injuries. It doesn't even make the top four list in that age group for white women, just to put it into perspective. If we go back even a bit farther to 2004, another Diné, Navajo woman, this time a child, went missing at the age of 16 while walking to school. On May 17, 2004, she left for her normal mile-long walk to school that she walked every Monday through Friday in the border town of Shiprock, New Mexico. When Tiffany didn't come home for dinner that evening, 
Her mom, Deidre Wheeler, wasn't too concerned, as it wasn't really unlike her daughter to not come home immediately after school. And by the morning when Tiffany didn't come home, she was a little bit more concerned. So she calls Northwest High School. And as it would turn out, Tiffany never showed up to school the day before. This would have me livid. My skin crawls at this. I know this is almost 20 years later, but if but when I was gone... <clears throat> I know this is almost 20 years later, but if I get a text that my kid is misreported absent and I call the school immediately to make sure they're not, that they're actually there. And I mean, I drop them off. I watch them walk into the building. They should be there. So knowing that and then getting a misreport is enough to make your heart skip a beat and place a phone call. You would think that the school would have had a better system in place to report a student not being at school, send an email, a text, a phone call. I mean, it's 2004, so maybe not a text, but definitely an email or a phone call. In 2004, I would have been in high school and my brother skipped a lot of school. I was a nerd, so don't come for me. And he ducked out of class a lot. My parents were notified every single time that day. In fact, my mom would get a phone call and she would say, good morning, Mrs. Maxwell, the school secretary, because she knew it was about my brother. I get that it was a smaller school, but accountability for students is huge. Who knows how much sooner the search could have started if she had been reported absent by the school and Deidre had been notified. This makes my head spin. So after hanging up with the school, Tiffany's mom called her other daughter, Deandra, to see if maybe she'd seen Tiffany, but Deandra hadn't. That's when Deidre called the police and reported her daughter missing. And as you would guess, authorities told Deidre to wait. As Tiffany had likely run away and overall the authorities didn't seem concerned. As per usual, Tiffany's mom insisted while it wasn't unusual for her daughter to leave for an evening or two, she always called and she was always back by morning. So how many times do we hear this and how many times are mothers ignored when they know something is wrong with their child? Tiffany's makeup bag was found at the base of Carrizo Mountains near Sweetwater, Arizona. Her purse, some of her clothing, and her library card were found scattered down a dirt road still in New Mexico. Tiffany's cousin, Becky Johnson, works at the Farmington Police Department and is also a member of the Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women and Relatives Task Force. Well, in 2019, 15 years after her cousin disappeared, Becky discovered that Tiffany was still not in the National Crime Information Center database. 15 years after she disappeared, one five. When she brought it to the attention of one of the officers, he told her that at one point, all of their missing people were, quote, purged from the system and that Tiffany must have been one of them, but that he had thought she had been added back in with, quote, everybody else. That turns my stomach. Tiffany's now a part of the system again as of February 2021. Until recently, no Indigenous tribal police had access to federal missing person systems like NCIC. It's my understanding that over the last year that has started to change, but for families like Tiffany's, it's kind of late, yeah? I want to read to you an excerpt from a recent interview with Tiffany's sister, Dehandra. She says, my sister Tiffany was only 16 years old when she went missing and would be turning 35 later this year, which is September of 2022, when this interview was given. That's almost half her life and mine since her disappearance. I often think of all the things that could have possibly happened to her and where she could be. I always wonder about the bond that I could have had with her and the bond she could have had with my children. It makes me sad, but most of all, it makes me angry. Angry that her case fell through the cracks. 
She was just a teenage girl with her whole life ahead of her, and she deserves justice as well as all of the Indigenous families who have a missing or murdered relative. Wherever she is, I just want her to know that I will not give up on her, and I will always love you, my dearest sister. And again, that interview was given in September of 2022, and Tiffany would be 35 on December 2nd, 2022. Becky Johnson is a survivor of sexual assault herself. On June 11, 1991, when Becky was only 13 years old, she was able to flee the man who attacked her and often wonders about whether maybe many of the other missing Becky Johnson is a survivor of sexual assault herself. On June 11, 1991, when Becky was only 13, she was able to flee the man who attacked her and often wonders about whether maybe many of the other missing women and girls met a similar fate of which they were unable to escape. Her story is a horrific one, where she ran from her attacker's house with zero clothing on, taking an opportunity as it was presented to get away. She ran to a house nearby, which happened to be her aunt's house, and as she got to the screen, he grabbed her legs, trying to yank her back to his possession. The front door opened, saved her life. He let go of her and fled. And I'm not entirely sure what the outcome of this assault was, and she doesn't go into detail about who was involved, but the fact that Tiffany isn't the only one in the family to have found herself in likely a very similar situation is chilling. It only gets worse for this family. Becky's Aunt Betty Lee was murdered in 2000 when she was left by some friends after a night out. She was only 36 years old and had five children at home. She had evidently tried to call her husband, but ended up accepting a ride home from a man named Robert Fry. When he tried to assault her, she fought back, and enraged by this, he stabbed her, drove her off the road, and used a sledgehammer to end her life. Fry was originally sentenced to death, not only for Becky's murder, but was convicted of three other murders as well. His death sentence has since been commuted to a life in prison sentence. I share all of these stories to show that the MMIW crisis is so much more severe than it seems we'll ever hear about in mainstream media. Three victims from one family over the span of 13 years and two of them within four years of each other. Becky fought for her life not only during her attack, but also in the aftermath, struggling with keeping her head above water and frankly with staying alive. She has since begun working on an MMIW task force appointed by Governor Michelle Grisham in fall of 2019 and spends her time training police officers on how to properly file missing persons reports, something I feel shouldn't have to be taught by civilian volunteers. The thing is, is that it's our job to hold governors, politicians of all types accountable for continuing to increase the legal regulations that there are on reservations. They don't have enough access to their own legality. They don't have enough access to punish or try or convict people who commit these crimes, let alone to come in and arrest them. And not only that, but there aren't even laws on the books that prohibit things like human trafficking on reservations. They've been largely ignored. And a lot of what I feel has happened, and excuse my soapbox here, but we've created these spaces for for, for basically for us to feel better about how nope. 
it's our job to do better. And it's our job to hold politicians accountable, to see action and not just pretty words talking about how change is coming. And I'll leave you with this. The nonprofit research group Sovereign Bodies Institute founder and Cheyenne descendant Anita Lucchesi expressed a patchwork of 574 federally recognized Indian nations in the U.S. makes crime reporting a challenge with victims bounced between local, state, and tribal authorities that often fail to communicate or cooperate with each other, wasting precious time. I'll link up all of the nonprofits in the show notes, as well as resources to learn more about the MMIP crisis and what can be done to help. Unfortunately, Tiffany's mom, Deidre, lost her battle with breast cancer in 2019, and Tiffany still has not been found. If you have any information that could help in finding Tiffany Reed, contact the Navajo Nation Division of Public Safety at 928-871-6390. And I'll be here Thursday with another segment of Coffee and Conjurings.